Welcome to the Golf Exposed Podcast. It is non-stop trash talk. I'm supposed to be pros here. I would be barefooted, drunk, playing golf. Golf Exposed Podcast. But it wasn't talked about like it is now. We got our ass kicked. Where we give you the good, the bad, and the truth about golf business, betting, and stories. Today on episode three of the Golf Exposed Podcast... We celebrate CEO John Brown's massive, nay, monumental betting victory at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. We're joined by Brown Golf Chief Financial Officer Jason Harshbarger to talk all things finance, processing fees, and more. Then, we're joined by former University of Texas golfer Matt Brose in part one of two as he shares some amazing stories on the course and beyond. It's Golf Exposed, episode three. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. John, a lot of good feedback on the first two episodes. Today, we're going to delve into more of a financial perspective, and I'll let you talk about our guests here in a moment. But this is really going to be not only applicable and help golf course owners and operators save some money, maybe maximize their profits a little bit, but it's really going to be applicable to all aspects of life and all business. So why don't you tell us who we're bringing on here today? Well, Jason Harshbarger, who is the CFO of Brown Golf and Golf Back, he's actually a co-owner in both businesses with me. So he's a guy who owns the bottom line cash flow. So obviously making the right decisions are fundamentally important to him. And with his background, he's going to give you a little bit of history of his background, but he's just seen credit card fees and merchant processing fees and just the negative side of what can happen from a profitability standpoint, how they impact and reduce margins if you don't handle those transactions and build uh, the right fundamental business relationships with those types of entities. And Jason's going to talk about that. He's transitioned hundreds of hundreds of clubs and let's invite him in. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here and lending some expertise first and foremost. Before we dive in, why don't you give us a little bit about your background? Yeah, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So started out my career in public accounting, um, had an opportunity to work for a golf course company that owned and operated 29 golf courses up and down the uh, East Coast. And uh, from there, transitioned into just doing some outsourced accounting on my own uh, through a private practice that I had. And uh, met John in 2011, had the opportunity to do some work for him as an independent contractor. And I uh, was fortunate enough to be brought into the company as, uh, as CFO and then uh, have an equity stake with him now. And couldn't be happier in where we are and where we've come since 2011. Now, Jordan, just so you know, Jason and I actually met because I signed him up as a member at the club I was working at. So was that the best interaction you ever had from a sales standpoint, Jason? Uh, it was It was up there. It was up there for sure. <laughs> well, you know, Jason, I'm the layman here. So maybe later, you know, if, if I have some... If I even need some of some advice, I might uh, pull you aside and talk to you maybe behind closed doors because let, let's be honest, my taxes aren't exactly in line. But we'll <laughs> talk about that later. Um, so, John, let, let's dive in here. You know Jason very well, and you've known him for years, worked with him. So um, I know we have a lot to get to. So let's just dive into the meat and potatoes. Well, Jason, you've transitioned, you know, hundreds of clubs at this point, you know, between all the brown golf courses where you were with Gotham previously and then obviously with your own private firm. And you, you know credit card fees and what they should be and the market rate, frankly. And I think a lot of misconception is what the market rate is for our industry. And one of the big areas, you know, that we want to help golf course owners and operators are, you know, what are the credit card fees? What should they be? What have you seen? And just what advice can you give? Yeah, so there's a lot of different formats in how credit card processing fees can come across, right? So there are fixed fees. Um, there are variable rate fees. Uh, per transaction fees, and the, probably one of the most common is interchange plus pricing. 
So Visa, MasterCard, Discover, and American Express have their stated rates, right? So we have to pay those rates. So the spread is what the processor gets that is over and above that uh, fixed fee that you'll see across Visa, MasterCard, and Discover. So when you say the spread and processor, you're talking about somebody separate from the credit card companies who's actually making that transaction happen. Yeah, so you know, Visa, MasterCard, Discover, American Express are not coming out and asking you for their business. You have third-party processors that are almost like sales agents that come out and ask you, you know, hey, would you will be willing to come on board with us, allow us to do your processing for you? We'll offer you these services, online platforms to you know, regulate and monitor your processing and things like that. And that's who you're negotiating with in terms of the pricing that are associated with those, uh, those, those platforms. So interchange rate is really the rate to process those particular credit cards. Is there a window that you can give us of what an interchange rate typically is? Yeah, it's, it varies from one and a half up to 3%, uh, depending on the card type and the, uh, and the card type that you're, you're using. So one and a half to 3%, that's a fee that everybody's going to have to pay wherever they are across the country in any business for the most part. Yes. And then you have your merchant processing fees on top of that, which is the processor. And what do those fees look like typically? So it really depends. Again, you can get into a fixed fee platform, which you know some of the third-party aggregators now have gotten out and offered a fixed fee rate where, you know, you, again, you're signing on, getting all of these bells and whistles that they have to offer in exchange for tea time inventory and things like that. But they're also now offering merchant processing. So they're really trying to get their, their hands on a lot of different things of your business. And those fixed fees we've seen just under the 3% rate. Um, you know, and then some of the platforms that we're involved with. So we really try and take everything out of the equation and really just come down to what does that interchange plus pricing look like? So we negotiate on, a, on that spread level. And we've seen, you know, at the high end, um, 10 basis points plus 10 cents per transaction um, is, is kind of the higher end. But then you get into other fees like monthly statement fees or PCI or non-PCI compliance fees or data breach fees or state, uh, you know, other gateway fees that are associated with these processors. And what we've done is we said, listen, you know, here, here's what we do on an annualized basis. Here's what our per transaction revenue is at, at a particular facility. What can you do for us in terms of the pricing? What is that spread that you're looking for? And let's just talk about that. So we, we start out negotiating on that front, and then we try and get the equipment uh, thrown in as well as elimination of all those fees. And really, the processor's really making that spread, and that spread is, is significant. I mean, we're talking about a $10 billion industry. There was $98.9 billion in revenue generated annually from credit card companies and processors uh, last year. 62% of that revenue comes from card processing. 16% is cash. So it's a huge industry. We get calls each and every day about processing and, and wanting to provide that service to us. And the very first thing they ask us for is, hey, can we see your statement? Anybody can, anybody can be your pricing if you give it to them, right? So we always say, do not give your statement away. Do not show them what you're paying. If they want to know something, give them what your annual revenues are, what you process in credit cards, and what your per transaction fee is, and say, give me your best price. So to simplify it for the audience, if I'm going to have a $100 transaction at my golf course, okay, what is the total fees that you've seen where it's been sort of the best you've seen in the market versus the worst? And can you just explain those fees? So $100 transaction, 
what are the additional fees on top that would be taking margin or expenses back to a golf course? Best and worst. Yeah, so worst case scenario, you know, it would be interchange plus 10 and 10, uh, like we talked about. So, you know, you're talking about the interchange fee plus 10 basis points and 10 cents per transaction. So what that means is every time that card is swiped, there's 10 cents or a dime uh, in fees coming back to you. In addition to that, you know, you may be paying for your equipment on a monthly fee. There may be a lease fee associated with that. There may be a statement fee associated with that. There may be a gateway charge associated with that. What we've done in our business is we said, okay, listen, if you want to work with us, we're willing to do it, but it's going to be on an interchange plus basis. And, and we negotiated a, a very, very competitive spread. Um, I, I think in all my years of doing this, it's obviously been the best pricing that I've ever seen in the industry. And I've had several colleagues uh, comment on, on how good our pricing is as well. Um, but and we've eliminated all those, all those ancillary fees, all those equipment charges, any type of monthly fees associated with it, we've eliminated it. So while some of these golf courses, owners and operators are out there um, paying these higher rates, they've also had these fees attached that they're not even aware of. And it's kind of one of those set it and forget it type things, right? I think two of the biggest challenges in the golf industry are insurance and merchant processing, because nobody really knows what the hell you're paying for. Um, you know, again, set it and forget it, right? So once you sign up and once it's in place, the owners generally forget about it. They see it come out on a monthly basis. You're not getting an invoice for it. It just comes directly out of your account. You don't even pay for it. They just take it right out of your account. And unless you're monitoring those statements on a monthly basis, you have no idea what you're paying. Jason, I'd like to go through a series of questions with you in a quick format, rapid fire format. If you don't mind, I'd fire them out there and you go ahead and answer them for us. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Does the fees associated with the debit card and a credit card at a golf course level, are they the same? No, they are not. There's much more margin on a debit card than on a credit card. So if I am interacting with a particular credit card client and they're giving me a flat rate fee and they're charging the same on a credit card and a debit card, they're making a lot of margin on that debit card? Correct. Yeah, because there's not a lot of interchange associated with a debit card versus a credit card. So a one-size-fits-all really should not be what we're looking for as in this industry. Not at all. Do you have any trade secrets, one, two, or three, that you want to give the audience right now today about merchant processing credit card fees? Yeah, so we talked a little bit about that. You know, the sales call, um, first and foremost, don't, don't share your statements with a, a processor, right? Because that's, that's one way that they're, they're going to beat the pricing. They know exactly what your pricing is. Anybody can beat anybody's pricing as long as you know what it is. The other thing, too, is look at eliminating higher-cost cards. So at Brown Golf, we've actually implemented a policy that we don't take American Express. American Express has the highest interchange rates out there. Your customers have a, a, different, a supplementary card to use outside of American Express. So we just you know, basically said we're not going to take it anymore. The other thing, too, is, is this gets a little bit outside of the comfort zone of, of some owners, but charge a transaction fee. Uh, a lot of states will allow you to charge a transaction fee to cover the expense associated with that, that, that uh, processing fee. So we, we've done it at several of our facilities. We've not had a lot of pushback with it, and it's uh, covered our expenses. Well, what it's really done for us, right, is we see more debit card transactions now, correct? 100%. Yeah. And we haven't received the friction that we thought maybe we would have. And if we would have, we probably would have repealed that. But 
it's been a successful you know decision by us. Yeah, it's it's, it's worked out really really well. It's allowed us to curb our curb our expenses. Um, you know, some customers don't care about it. They're still wanting to get their rewards and stuff like that. Others have shifted to a debit card, which is a, a, um, a limit alleviated some of the expense associated with our, our processing. If I was uh, a technology company, a point of sales company, you know, even golf back, and I went to a golf course customer and I said, I'd like to provide you some services, but you have to use my credit card processing. Is that a red flag? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it, it, it can be, right? You, you always want to understand what that pricing model looks like um, and, and what expenses are associated with it. Just to uh, to sign up with a point of sale provider and, and accept what they're giving you as part of a processing deal, you know, you, you have to, you have to do your due diligence on that. It's a layered nuanced business, a lot like the barter tea time business that I've talked about previously. So sometimes it helps to have an expert to ask these questions. Are you available? hundred percent. Yeah, we're, we're, we're around. Um, you can track us down at browngolfmanagement.com, golfbacksolutions.com, or I'm on LinkedIn as well. So uh, happy to help anybody out there. One thing I've noticed in this industry this year in particular is with the COVID impact, a lot of golf courses were very quick to react and say, I need to collect 100% of the green fee hands-free through credit card processing on my website. And they went out to look for a solution and many of them found a solution but didn't evaluate the credit card fees. I think that's been a major mistake. Any feedback? Yeah, 100%. I mean, well, again, if you've had merchant processing in place, all you're doing is basically extrapolating what you would have done in cash pre-COVID, uh, now pushing it through your merchant processing, right? So if your pricing is is higher than it should be, you've, in essence, lost money during this COVID pandemic that you would have had, you know, if you were accepting cash. The worst credit card fees I've seen in the industry are roughly about 2.9%, 10 cents in transaction. Have you seen anything worse than that? No, I think that that's pretty pretty up there. You know, I, again, we we are very competitive, and and uh, you know, going back to what John said about signing me up for a membership, you know, I I, I look for deals, I look to uh, to challenge vendors, and and I even got a cart pass out of John as part of our membership, as you know, during that process. So not easy to do either. Not <laughs> easy to do. Well, this has been uh, this has been very informative. I'd take a look at your credit card processing fees. If you're paying some flat rate, if you're paying you know a, a delta of credit card fees on debit cards, if your rate is you know two and a half percent or higher, and there's a transaction fee on each purchase, you know I'd start to worry. Look at that credit card fee line as an expense line in your financials and challenge yourself. Can I lower that? And the answer in most cases is yes. We're happy to help you. We'll be right back with a very accomplished young man by the name of Matt Brost. It's going to be a two-part interview, and he has some incredible experience and some incredible golf stories. It's Matt Brost on the Golf Exposed podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Golf Exposed podcast. And John, we got a lot of heat for not having an epic golf story on our last episode, but we have stories aplenty, stories abound, and a lot of personality being interjected in this episode, do we not? We really do. We're, we really have a great guest today, someone who's experienced, you know, the upper echelon of competition, but also just connected in some great stories, seen some great matches, played in some great matches. Uh, I'm really excited about this guest. 
So Matt Brost is going to join us on the show here. Uh, we'll tell you in broad strokes about him because I want him to delve into it himself, but obviously played at the University of Texas. And John, you had to enlighten me a little bit. I know that's a prolific school in a lot of sports, but that's that's like playing at Duke or UNC if you're a basketball player. You have to be a heck of a junior player to even be looked at, let alone you know receive a scholarship and play on that team. So uh, Matt was able to do that. I met him, I don't know, it's probably three years ago or so uh, at a conference and we developed you know, a friendship and uh, we actually work together professionally now and uh, let's invite him on. And, and Matt, maybe you could just start by telling us a little bit about what you do professionally and then we can dive in. Matt, are you there? I am here. I appreciate it, guys. Thank you. And uh, thanks for the introduction too. But yeah, John, it's been really neat to get to know you. And, um, you know, I am, I, I work in the insurance industry and I help, um, I help, you know, businesses across the across the country with um, all lines of insurance for those businesses. And I certainly, you know, with my golf background, I have a pretty significant affinity uh, for the golf industry. And so it's really fun to be able to help, you know, um, organizations in the golf industry just do the best thing they can from the insurance standpoint. So um, I appreciate it. Thank you. Why don't you go ahead and say your company, Matt, because honestly, you know, we've been working with you now. Uh, for about a year and you're the third company that we work with related to insurance and by far and away the most professional and just been a really great uh, relationship and we're excited about you know partnering with you why don't you at least say the company yeah Holmes Murphy and Associates I wear a lot of hats there but Holmes Murphy and Associates is the uh, is the parent company and um, it's a yeah it's a great place to work so I heard that you've closed some business deals with John here. So essentially that just means you're taking him out to the course, getting him nice and liquored up, and then you're kicking his ass in golf for a little bit. Is, <laughs> is that pretty much all it takes? You know what? I got to be honest. We've done that once. Um, and I would say it was a great time, but uh, you know what? He, he surprised me. I gave, um, you know, I gave him too many shots. He ended up beating me for sure. Was that number of shots more or less than you give to normal people when you meet them? <laughs> you know, uh, you're 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 a good golfer, so it's uh, it was less. So you you surprised me, man. You can play some you can play some golf. Well, listen, I'm not going to put a trophy up in the air because ten shots, which is what it was, is a tremendous amount of shots. But you know, Matt's a real good player, so I need every one of them. So I thought you guys were talking about shots of Jack, and I was going to be like, <laughs> I need to play with you guys. <laughs> Actually, it was a great little location, Escondido, down there uh, in Texas. It was my first time playing the golf course. I think we actually played golf. I don't know if we had beer on the golf course or not, but I believe they gave us a shot right at the end of the round. If I'm remembering, they were standing there waiting for us, weren't they, Matt? Yeah, they have that celebratory uh, shot of tequila right when you walk off the green, that 18th green there. So that was pretty cool. Right there. Yeah, and that whole trip, that whole trip was really neat. There, there was probably, um, probably more cocktails that were had than probably should have been, but it was, uh, it was memorable for sure. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about what the atmosphere is like playing at the University of Texas on, on the golf course? I mean, if you, if you think of, you know, great college teams that everybody knows, like playing at USC, if you're playing football and you're playing it, um, in the Rose Bowl, if you're playing at, you know, Camden or if you're playing at the Dean Smith Center or something like that, what was the atmosphere like? What, was it high pressure? Was it exciting? Was it a little bit of both? Um, walk us through that. Yeah, it was it was certainly all the above. I mean, from the second that you start to be courted, I guess you would say that's the recruiting process. Um, 
you know something special is going on. And, you know, University of Texas doesn't really spare a dime when it comes down to, um, you know, recruiting athletes, taking care, you know, their athletes, um, whether that be, you know, you, you, you certainly do get, you know, great attention when it comes down to them helping you with your academic efforts and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, I would say there is high pressure, but they certainly equip you to be able to handle that pressure. Um, you know, some of the cool stuff that, that happens when, you know, you're an athlete at a place like the University of Texas, especially the golf team, because the golf team, we're the ones that are kind of taking people out to play golf or um, uh, you, you can say like when there's a big, you know, foundation fundraiser or something like that, a lot of times the golf, the golf team is invited to, to play with donors and that kind of stuff. But um, next thing you know, there will be somebody like a Matthew McConaughey walk in the locker room. We, we played golf at um, we, at the time when I was there, we all had memberships at Barton Creek country club, but now they have the, the UT golf club. And I mean, it's, it's pretty regular. There's, you'd be surprised a lot of the people that, that love the university of Texas and all of a sudden walk up on you when you're hitting balls and want to start a conversation with you. So it's a, it's a pretty cool thing. You had a great uh, class, I believe. Wasn't uh, was David Gossett the same class as you, or a different class? Yeah, he was the same. He was my roommate. So, the crazy thing is, um, when I was being recruited to go to the University of Texas, they were recruiting. Um, you know, I would say five of the top ten players in the country for junior golfers at the time, and they had every scholarship available um, at the time. So, you know, golf, college golf only has four and a half scholarships for the whole team. That's, that's the, you know, regulation on the NCAA. And so, um, a lot of times a recruiting effort for a golf team is very limited when they've already got really good players on the team. That means they don't have a lot of money to put toward new recruits. And this time they had all their scholarship money available. And, um, and so we, we came in five freshmen, including David Gossett, a guy named Russell Server, John Clout, Cully Berrigan. Um, and um, we played, all five of us, of us freshmen played the entire first year. Um, and we were number one in the country with all five freshmen there. So they were calling us, I know golf isn't as big of a deal as college basketball is, but they were calling us the Fab Five at the time. Um, until we were all failing our classes right before the end of the year. And, and uh, we had to, we basically stopped practicing for like last month or two of school so that we can make sure we pass our classes so we can play the next year. So we lost that number one ranking, um, but it was pretty crazy. Somebody forgot to tell you about that class thing, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was uh, that, that first year was a rude awakening. That's for sure. Well, I think, uh, you know, I, I know you had great memories. I was fortunate enough to sit at a dinner with your golf coach and it was in, you know, he's a legendary coach and I know he's, you know, like a father to you. Um, but the stories he told were wonderful. It seems like a very family oriented environment, at least when he was the coach and seems like just a lot of inroads, even after you've left Texas so many years, you know, with that program. So I, I think it was a great decision by you. Would you agree? Yeah, no doubt. And Coach Fields, he is kind of like a father figure for me. And um, and so, you know, we catch up often. I would say we at least talk to each other every month, if not every week. And um, it's it's a family for sure. It's a high-pressure family, you know. 
Um, but coach does a really good job at kind of balancing the fact that he does want performance, but then that's not, you know, that's not going to dictate whether he cares for you or not, you know? So he, he really balances that really well. So David Gossett as your roommate won the 99 U.S. Amateur. So was that while you were in college still? Yep. Yep. That was pretty neat. But you know, the U.S. Amateur is in the summer. Yep. So there was, there was a David Gossett that left his freshman year and then a different David Gossett that showed up his sophomore year. Um, you know, when you come back on campus and you're, you're the U.S. Amateur champion, you've got invitations to the Masters, the British Open, the U.S. Open, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's a different road. And so that sophomore year that he had, he ended up playing half of, the, half of his sophomore year and then decided to go professional. Um, and, uh, but that was pretty cool. We got to, as a team, go watch him play the Masters after he won the U.S. Amateur. And, um, that was a really neat thing to be able to do. And, um, you know, and I had the opportunity to caddy for him, um, when he won the John Deere classic, I was just, he, he told me, Matt, Hey, I got into a PGA tour event and, uh, you know, wanted you to come out and caddy for me. And we were doing it just friend helping a friend when it came down to it. Next thing you know, we're sitting on 18 green with putt to win, <laughs> win a PGA event. It was crazy. Um, I caddy for him a few times after that too, but it was never a career that I pursued. Correct me if I'm wrong, but he actually won that as his first professional or his first PGA event. Do you feel as a caddy, I don't think a lot of people really can understand because they've never been put in that position. Do you feel a lot of pressure on you to give good advice or do you, is it really more in the golfer's hands or a mixture of both? Yeah, you're more like, I think a caddy, the value a caddy has is almost like a psychologist that's on the bag more so than an instructor. And so the advice that you're giving is, is more so just kind of keeping them calm, keeping them collected, keeping them focused on the things that they need to be focused on. There's very few caddies that actually make club decisions and actually read putts when it comes down to it. Now you are kind of like the carrier of information. And so when a player wants to know how far is it to cut, to clear that bunker and that kind of stuff, you need to know that and you need to know it quick. Um, but you're not necessarily making, you know, the decisions, but you do carry a lot of pressure, you know, when, and I didn't know it, but kind of getting into that position and, you know, I think round one, David shot in the sixties, every single round. Um, round one, we realized, wow, played a great round. That's awesome. Round two, I think we we're in the lead after this, after the second round. And next thing you know, it kind of got real. We're like, what, what are we doing? And then, and then you maintain that lead after round three and then round four, I, I feel like I can remember every step I took on that golf course during the fourth round of the John Deere with him. And especially the moments where, you know, I felt like I had a lot of value that I threw in there, just kind of keeping him calm. I mean, he was, I don't even know if he was 21 years old at that point, you know, and um, just keeping him calm and being able to hit quality golf shots, even to the point when your hands are shaking. I mean, I remember on the 18th green, you know, David looked over at me, he had about a six foot putt to win. And right in the middle, the, the cameras didn't catch it on TV or anything, but he's putting his ball down on the green after he had marked his ball and his hand is literally shaking and he can't even get the ball to stop. And then all of a sudden he just took this deep breath, looked over at me, let go of the ball. And then he lined up and, and lined up to that putt and 
he just took this huge deep breath before he took the putt. You can almost see it on TV when he did it. You can see his like chest like open up and then he just pulled the trigger and it's, it's real though. I mean, like, I think, I think it was Jack Nicholas that said, if, um, if you're not shaking in a moment like that, you're not living. And, uh, it, it was, he was, he was really shaking. It's, it's hard to hit. I mean, golf is a precise sport, so it's hard to hit a really good golf shot when you're literally, your body is shaking, but he, he was able to pull it off. Now, Matt, based off the fact that David hit a fairly mediocre putt, from my point of view, that read must have been perfect by the caddy. Can you confirm that fact? <laughs> okay, you got to remind, tell what did you just say again? <laughs> Based on the fact that the read was so perfect, it was fine if David hit a mediocre putt because yeah, read yeah, exactly. Perfect. Are you, can you confirm that? Yes, I can. I can totally confirm that. Well, great, great. So David got a two year exemption on tour at that point, right? Yeah, he did. He did. And, um, you know, right after that, there was a conversation from David, like, Hey, do you want to, you want to keep this going? That was, that was still officially the largest check I ever made in the game of golf. And, um, but you know, I, I, Matt, do you mind us asking? (laughs) Well, you know, he made just over 600 grand and I got 10% of that and I got my expenses paid and all that. So, you know, for being a kid that was in college, that was pretty good. It's not so a bad good work. It's about the same as John me to produce this podcast. <laughs> so you yeah. actually made more than Matt Kuchar pays his caddy today. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was he was fair. He was fair, but I, I mean, I did caddy a few other times, and yeah, you know, I would say uh, I think we were on a streak for about three times in a row. He got top ten, and. Um, so that was the the FedEx, and then we played in the John Deere again the next year, and we got top ten. And then uh, again that same year that he won, we I caddied for him in the PGA Championship, and he was actually in the lead um, through twenty seven holes. And then he just um, I haven't ever you know I hope David's not listening to this, but he just choked. And um, you know he had after twenty seven holes, I mean he just really started struggling and you know the game of golf you just get in your head sometimes and we ended up missing the cut um but you know david had some serious game around that time that that period of time for sure i'm not going to judge or make fun of everyone i've hit people at the driving range like three stations down for me okay (laughs) so you know the fact that he didn't make a cut in a professional tournament i'm not going to say too much so <laughs> that must have been quite the back nine at the pga though i'm sure yeah <laughs> it was probably yeah, it was yeah, it was not fun it was it was like misery it was not fun yeah i'm assuming that uh you didn't take advantage of the two-year caddy exemption the pga tour gives as well right i did not i did not <laughs> i went and pursued my own thing i tried to play myself and so um but I would show up every once in a while. I need a little bit of money. So, but at, some, at, at, at one point, you know, David started kind of losing his game a little bit, um, you know, really remained positive. He was such a positive guy, but certainly started losing his game, you know, after a couple of years. Um, and, uh, you know, it, I, I did continue to caddy for him during that, during that period of time every once in a while too. You start to see like that, the game of golf, how fickle it can get, and 
And when you get bad thoughts in your mind, it's really hard to get rid of them. And that's kind of what happened with David. And since we're recently coming off a PGA tournament at Pebble Beach, Matt is going to lead us off with a great story when he played that historic course for himself. Enjoy. A tournament called the Callaway Pebble Beach Invitational. And it's very similar to the AT&T Pro-Am that they have this week. Um, it's not televised, but it's got um, PGA Tour players and senior PGA Tour players in it too, or Champions Tour. And people like Phil Mickelson was playing. And so it was my first time. My uncle was the historian for the Pebble Beach Company. And so, um, and he, he still is to a certain capacity. And so I had a special invitation to play in that event. And so it was my first time playing with the, you know, with the big guys and, you know, my wife caddied for me while I tried to play professionally. And that was awesome. Um, But we show up on the first tee and I mean, there's people that pay a lot of money to be in these pro-am groups in tournaments like that. And so I think it might be like $20,000 a person to play in the Callaway Pebble Beach Invitational. And, you know, you get this feeling when you walk up on the tee and they realize they got paired with the only mini tour player that's in the field. And um, it was, it was, you know, from the first, on the first tee, it was just kind of humbling. I've got my wife on the bag. I got a little carry bag. I don't have a huge staff bag like everybody else, all that kind of stuff. If you can just kind of paint the picture. And uh, so I'm, I'm feeling it on the first tee and I hit a pretty poor drive, ended up getting a double bogey on the first hole. And I remember walking off the first green, looking at my wife saying, I'm in way over my head, babe. And uh, she just said, just hang in there. And the, you could tell that my playing partners too, the other guys in the pro-am were, were just uh, kind of shaking their heads almost. Um, they were nice. It was a bunch of oil tycoons actually out of, out of uh, Canada. But um, so we get on the second hole. I got a birdie on the second hole, got a birdie on the third hole, got a birdie on the fourth hole, got a birdie on the fifth hole, eagled six, birdied seven, birdied eight, birdied nine, and shot 29 on the front with a double bogey on the first hole. And uh, it was crazy. So that was an awesome, awesome day. And my pro-am group ended up loving me at the end of that round. I think it might be safe to say that's the only 29 after a double on the first hole out there. Do you think? It might, it might be. And, you know, my uncle's a historian and uh, he, he still says it doesn't, you know, they, the archives of the Cali Pebble Beach Invitational aren't as good as the AT&T, but he still says it's probably one the most impressive front nine he's ever seen at Pebble Beach and he's their historian. So that's, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's a great story. All right, so Matt, thank you so much for providing all this great insight, amazing stories. Um, basically, because I have ADD and just a scatterbrained human being, we kind of like to enter into what's called a rapid fire uh, as we're wrapping things up here. So we're going to toss some things out there. Give us your initial thoughts or insight on the topic or person that we talk about. Understood? Understood. All right. So first and foremost, how good of a golfer is Tony Romo? Average scratch golfer. It, which means exponentially better than normal human beings. Exactly, exactly. The, I, I feel like the media makes it um, makes him seem that he's he's better than he actually is, though. But good guy, awesome guy. Um, you won't be seeing him as a as a PGA Tour um, pro anytime soon. Even though he does get the opportunity to play in tournaments every once in a while, but he won't necessarily probably earn his way there. Do you like his announcing? 
Yeah, I think it's awesome. I've got two little girls at my house, so I don't get a ton of time to sit and watch watch football. But when I do, and he's announcing, I think he's I think he's really good. So a hundred matches in a row, you versus Tony Romo, who obviously played with in, in the Dallas area. Who? How many are you winning? How many is he winning? Uh, I bet it's fifty fifty. You know, he he plays every day now, and I play like once a month. So. Um, but it's, uh, it's probably 50, 50, Matt, who's the best player that you've ever played with or against? I think the most talented player I've ever played with is Bubba Watson. What he does with a golf ball is pretty crazy. And it's just a pure gift. You know, nobody teaches how nobody teaches, you know, anybody to move the ball, the amount that he moves the ball. And back in the day, he used to be a very long hitter. Now people have caught up to that, but um, I used to play with him a lot um, in college and through um, the mini tour world of things too, before he became a big, big deal. And uh, you know, there was something special about it. Anytime you were playing with Bubba. Was he a nice guy or what kind of experience did you have as far as interacting with him, you know, outside of the golf course? Yeah, he's really, really nice. Um, especially the side of him that I got. I think that there's been some other sides of him that some other people get that, you know, that kind of come out every once in a while that he would be the first to say he's not proud of. But I, I'm a big fan of Bubba. He's, he's a good dude. Um, have you ever met Justin Leonard? And can you, get, can you give his personal phone number to John? Because he loves him about as much as I love Tom Brady, which is a little bit too much. I didn't know you were a Justin Leonard fan, John. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 96, you know, British Open, you know, he were about the same height. We hit it about the same distance. What's not to love? Wearing the polo? Yeah, so I, I, I have a little story around this. I know it's not a rapid-fire story, but um, okay, we got I grew up as a student of Randy Smith um, here in the Dallas area, and one of the things Randy would, would do is that as a player is starting to come up and they get to become kind of like Randy realizes, okay, this guy's going to do something. Um, he, he just creates these really cool experiences. So when I was about 12 or 13 years old and I show up at Royal Oaks to go work with Randy, all of a sudden Randy said, you know what, I've got somebody here to join us. And it was Justin. And I did a whole practice session with Justin right after, you know, I think this is when he's the U.S. Amateur champion. I don't think he's a British Open champion at that point. And uh, become a fan of Justin ever since then. You know, we, we remained in contact to a period of time, I guess. Um, but then I went to the University of Texas a lot because, you know, I like Justin Leonard. So we've, we've got an equal uh, affinity for Justin Leonard, for sure. Any cool hole-in-one stories? Yes. Yeah. Um, I've got – so I was in a mini-tour event in Alexandria, Louisiana, it was called the Adams Golf Tour, and it was actually a really good mini tour. And um, you know, it was Sunday, and you get paired with with two players. Um, I was it was myself and a guy named Kerry Lott, and he used to play golf at Arkansas. And um, you know, I think it's the fifteenth hole on the golf on the course. There, it's about a two hundred yard um, all water down the left, so a lot of people bail out on the right. Kerry goes and and he just hits this perfect five iron um, right into the hole. It was just tracking the whole time. And what's cool is on the other side of the water, there was this group of players and they could all see it happen. And 
and they're spectators too, even though it's mini tour stuff, they still have a few spectators. So there's a lot of cheering. It's really cool. And I've never backed up a hole in one before. And so I get up there and I hit and just so happened, I put it right on top of him. So back to back hole in ones, we go grab our balls out of that hole. And uh, we're like, who hits first on the next hole? And I, so I, I, I was second. So I didn't even get the honor on the next hole after getting a hole in one. And, um, you know, there was actually after that, there was a story done in golf week that talked about how the odds, odds would be better to, to win the lottery than for that to happen. And, you know, I think having that hole in one might have meant an extra 50 bucks versus a lottery ticket win. So I probably would have rather had the lottery, but it's a pretty cool story. Um, I wanted to ask you a question, and we didn't really preface you with this, so hopefully you can lend some perspective. When people play a sport at a high level like you did, typically when it's, you know, football or basketball and people say, oh, you know, my sport really prepared me for life or business or whatever's next, whether I became a professional or not, did playing golf at such a high level prepare you for life, prepare you for business, and if so, how did it do that? And the reason that I ask so specifically, a lot of people think of golf like myself who play it casually as a leisurely activity. For you, it was not like that. So how did golf prepare you for what was next in your life? Yeah, I appreciate you asking that question because I think golf is extremely unique in a sense that it's a sport that you cannot let your emotions you know, take over like football. It's almost good when you've got emotions and maybe even basketball. I don't know, but in golf, you know, you have got to learn the art about forgetting about what's behind you and focusing on what's ahead of you. And, and if you can't do that, you're never going to be, you know, let's, let's say a, a really high quality golfer. And so there is no doubt that the, the art of, of that, um, there's actually a, you know, there's a Bible verse that says, forget about what is behind and strain towards what is ahead. And I mean, that is just 100% um, the greatest thing that I learned from the game of, game of golf, because, you know, in life and business, we've got a lot of days that don't go the way that we want them to. And um, to be able to kind of put those behind you and give your best foot forward ahead of you is, is I think, a, a really good tool. All right, Matt, finishing off here, uh, one last question, which I think is, is a really cool story. You belong to a club, uh, Merido, that's had some pretty neat events lately. Can you expand on that? Yeah, so there's this golf club called Merido. Uh, Merido, Merido. Um, Mary is the wife of the owner of this club. The owner is a guy named Albert Huddlestein. And, um, and it's this club that opened about three years ago. And, and basically Albert bought this, this, this old club called the Colombian country club. It was an old Jewish club that he bought the property, bought the facility and basically bulldozed the whole thing, brought in a great designer to designer to create like just a gem that's in the middle of the DFW Metroplex. that still not many people know about, and it's kind of by design. Not many people want, the members of Merido don't really want people to know about Merido, but um, you know, there's some really, really cool members there. People like Tony Romo, Jordan Spieth, Marty Turco, Ian Kinsler. Um, those are some of the highest quality golfers that are there too. So we play a good amount and there's a lot of really great games that happen. Um, but also they're very like, they kind of want to say they're a little bit kind of like the East Lake of Dallas to where, um, 
they want to say they're exclusive but also inclusive and so they do want to open the doors to having events um, all about the game of golf and that's what happened when this pandemic came up um, there was not an opportunity for even tour players to have events to play in and there is this huge demand for a place for people to go play real events and um and so Albert and a number of the members, including Jordan Spieth, kind of said, let's start hosting some events here because during when the pandemic started, like caddies couldn't even caddy because of the, you know, the risk to, to spread COVID um, to the players, et cetera. So the caddies lost their jobs. And so they created these tournaments called the Merido Samaritans Fund, where, um, where they were really just fundraisers for the caddies to be able to still get a paycheck during this time. And those tournaments became just kind of like a simple fundraiser to becoming almost like PGA Tour sanctioned events. Nobody knew about it. It was just this club in the middle of Dallas where all of a sudden you turn your head and Jordan, Ricky Fowler, Justin Thomas, Ryan Palmer, just all these players. And a lot of the old players that you haven't seen for a while, like Lee Trevino and that kind of stuff, they're coming and playing these events and really competing and really creating this place for, you know, tour players, college players, really high quality amateur players to have a place to play in the middle of this pandemic. It was a pretty cool thing to be a part of. Only the members were able to kind of go watch. That wasn't really necessarily out of just because it's a really exclusive place. It was really just because you didn't want to have a bunch of crowds because of COVID. So um, cool thing to be a part of for sure. And it's, it's a great club to be a member at. Yeah, that, that is a really neat story. Well, all, all of this information and, and just these connections and stories that you've brought uh, to the podcast today were, were great to listen to. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you, man. I, this is fun. I've been listening to the podcast. It's a great one. Appreciate it. Great segment, great stories, a great time with Matt Brost from the University of Texas. Very accomplished golfer, very accomplished business and family man. Great to have him on the show. Matt, thank you again for being here. And guys, we so greatly appreciate all the support, all the subscribers. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please do. We're available on all major platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio. And of course, our home server is Podbean or golfexposed.podbean.com. Be on the lookout for our PGA tournament editions, which is our betting segment every Tuesday night or Wednesday morning. And the Golf Exposed official podcast episodes will be launching every Friday. You can visit browngolfmanagement.com or golfbacksolutions.com for any of the information we talked about today. And to get more information and reach out, let us know what you think of the show or if you have any questions. See you next week.